Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. All right, I'm live with David Knorr, expert on applications of strategic relationships in profitable growth, author of over 10 books and contributor to all kinds of great publications. David, welcome to the show. Andy, it's good to be with you. Really good to have you on. We were introduced by the global CEO of a company, so that's always a great introduction. You know when you get that, then you've got to talk to this person. And book you come on here. We never talked before. We just started chatting and I already knew right away it's one of those we could probably talk for an hour and I would forget to hit record or go live. So I just hit that so we could get things going. So cool to have you on here. It's good to be with you. I appreciate the CEO who introduced us and uh, look forward to a rich conversation with you. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast. It's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. All right, so let's start with a little bit of an introduction. I'd love to introduce you to my audience, get to know you a little bit. Tell me about who you are, what you do. Sure. So I'm originally from Iran, came to the US in 1981 with a suitcase, a hundred bucks, and he didn't know anybody and didn't speak a word of English. I came here to finish high school. I got my Eagle Scout here, grew up in Atlanta. I feel like I work for the Chamber of Commerce some days. I've moved away six times and I keep coming back. It's a great place to raise a family. I'm actually 95 years old. I look great for 95 because there's been three phases in my career. <laughs> First phase was technology. So IBM, Silicon Graphics, Business Objects, Sales, 
marketing. Then after graduate school, I went to Emory that goes what a business school for grad school. And after that, I became president of a company, went up to New York, raised a round of funding. Then I spent a number of years at a private equity firm and we bought and sold 110 different companies. So consulting, president of a company, private equity. Then 18 years ago, I actually went out on my own and I run a boutique innovation consultancy to really fuel new revenue, new growth opportunities for my global clients. And I bring this unique lens of strategic relationships to accelerate getting things done. And I've been blessed. Over a couple hundred global brands have been clients over the years. And as you were kind enough to mention, 10 books. Back in the good old days of February 2020, when we used to get out and speak, right. I typically speak 50, 60 times a year. And I'm mm. an adjunct faculty at Emory University in Atlanta and Vanderbilt University in Nashville in both the executive education program. Programs. That is a lot of stuff. You must be 95 years old. You've done a lot of things. Rolling rocks gather no moss, my friend. You got to keep moving. You, you got to keep, keep moving. moving. That's how I like to operate as well. The 10 books, I'm very curious about getting into that. I'm writing my first book right now, as I told you, and doing it while running a business and many other things. I assume you did the same thing. How did you get into that? How did the first book happen? So again, you and your audience would be delighted to hear I'm not writing Harry Potter, right? I'm never going to get wealthy <laughs> writing books. Actually, the first few years of my business, I pushed off the idea. and But at some point, you've read enough. Andy, you've talked enough. You've researched enough. You've consulted enough. You've coached enough about an idea that you feel like you have something to say. And I had enough people ask me, is there a book on this topic? I was out talking about business relationships and how to become more intentional and strategic and quantifiable in the relationships you choose to invest in. And like I said, enough people wanted to know more that I just kept getting asked, is there a book? And I literally wrote a a, I want to say 60 page booklet of six by nine. And I printed it at a local printer. I would literally just hand those out almost like a booklet that had some good ideas in there, but I felt like it needed to be more substantive. And so my first book came out in 2008. Wiley published it. It's called Relationship Economics. The other thing I try to do is keep my ideas evergreen. So I've already updated to a paperback and I'm about to write the third edition of that book. And then as you write each book, other ideas come to you. I've always said I learn, and this is a tip for you, might be useful. I learn as much about my own books after they come out because people read them. They bring their ideas, their perspectives, their research, their references of, have you read this? Have you thought about this? It makes me think of that. And you feel like, man, I wish I knew this stuff when I was writing the book. And so you already have material for the next edition, if not the next book. And that's what led to the subsequent ones. And like I said, I'm writing book number 11 right now that uh, hopefully will be out in the fall. And that one is called Curve Menders. That's amazing. And interesting that you said, you're obviously, a student of life and someone who's always learning and talking to people much like I am as well, or try to be. And you go out there and you said you learn more about the book after you publish it. Does that almost get frustrating because you can't necessarily change it? No, not necessarily frustrating. It really becomes a great opportunity to double down on what you just mentioned, which is I'm absolutely a lifelong learner. You also have to know your why. If you're publishing a book, my why is to disseminate my ideas. My why is to instill conversations with executives that I work with. I'm not writing for everybody. That's just like you're trying to date. It's been a few presidents since I've dated. You know, you can't date everybody. So my target is PL executives who are trying to solve, they're stuck, they're trying to solve real problems and their teams, right? So the more I speak with them. I've had 64 conversations just in the last three, four weeks. 
with executives globally. The more I learn about their challenges, their opportunities, what they're thinking, what they're hearing, what they're seeing. And sooner or later, you start to come up with some questions. And those questions, the ones that gnaw at you, at me anyway, I get really curious about. I start reading and I start writing articles and blogs and more recently podcasts. And, and at some point, like I said, you feel like I've been thinking about, it takes me about four years to think about an idea enough. I've got six grad students that do social science research for me. And you come up with substantive enough information. You feel like you want to share that yet. You can't know it all. My dad drove into me. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So after you publish the book, like I said, when people actually read it and they bring their perspective their lens, their experiences, what I love is they challenge a lot of your assumptions. They challenge a lot of your thinking. And it does one of two things, either reinforces what you were doing, which is, oh man, I was right on that topic or that issue. Or again, if you're a student learner, if you're a lifelong learner, you're like, okay, that person or that update has changed my mind. And then you learn to maneuver your thinking or shift your thinking. And that's where the subsequent editions or the next book comes in. And it's a really exciting learning ecosystem to research, write, edit, share, and get feedback from the market on your ideas. So it's, it's an ever evolving process and you are evolving your thinking on things and you don't feel like if you published a book and you can still change your thinking on it and it's okay, that book is still out there starting the discussion. I'm going to tell you what a mentor drove into me years ago. When you you're 80% ready move, right? The last mm. 20% doesn't matter. Yeah. And you'll never get a perfect book. You'll never write everything you want to write. Yeah. You'll never be done if you wait for it to be perfect. Yeah. And again, there's a reason that you'll do subsequent the reason I do subsequent editions is I incorporate all the stuff I've learned since the original edition came out. Mm. The edition comes out. Yeah. I love that. And I am not one who ever waits for things to be perfect as most people who work with me uh, can attest. So I don't worry about that with my book. I'm reviewing it now and I'm adding to it and I'm not worried about it being perfect. I'm worried about it having too much. I may have to call it in the editing process. We'll see because I feel like it's getting a little long. And it's a great experience, right? I do the same thing. I write a ton, then you kind of slim back of, I feel like you really appreciate the movie editors, right? Who take a scene and they yeah. spend time, effort, money, resources on that scene. But you know what? It doesn't contribute to the story or it doesn't enhance that character. Whatever the case may be in our world, does it reinforce that idea? The other challenge that I don't know if you face the same or not, it's getting beyond motherhood and apple pie right? Nobody's going to say we want crappy solutions. I want to be an awful place to work and we don't want to communicate. So how do you get beyond the obvious for those really aha, those nuggets, those I've always believed I'm in the idea business and my superpowers make people think. If you believe that, double down on how do I get people to really think differently, lead differently, their teams, their organizations themselves in this personal and professional growth journey. So you mentioned being a lifelong learner and I feel the same way, always trying to learn as much as I can, reading, going through classes, webinars, whatever it may be. And right before we started recording, you mentioned to me that I said, what do you want to talk about? And you said, well, I've talked to 64 senior executives in the last two weeks and attended 128 webinars, which is just seems like incredible to me. So tell me more about that. And why were you doing that? Yeah. So the executives, when this pandemic really started to take, we all went beyond this more than a flu. And you start to see, unfortunately, a lot of uh, clients shut down unnecessary travel and they start to really think about as government orders came, state shelter at home orders came, and we saw the numbers climb in first Asia, then Europe, then of course US. I made a list of my most valuable relationships, clients, prospects, collaborators, people that I value their opinion and perspectives. And I started to reach out and I'm still not done, but I'm going through the list of, hey, what are you seeing? 
What are you hearing? What are you thinking? What are you doing? What crossroad do you find yourself at? What are you struggling most with? And the speed of this pandemic, right, initially created a both a supply shock and then a demand shock. And I think now beyond the shock, what I get really excited about is more my executive relationships are thinking about COVID-19, not as a beginning, middle and an end, but really as this kind of co-19, what I call new norm, right? So how do we live with this thing? How do we get back to productivity? How do we get back to work and really beyond lives now start to shift our thinking to livelihoods and not let this thing globally wreck our livelihoods, if you will. So in that process, and again, to build on that idea of lifelong learner, I'm a voracious reader. So I read three, four books at a time. I subscribe to 20 some odd uh, newsletters. And I've been doing the funny thing is I've been doing webinars for probably 10 years. It was really cool about 10 years ago. And then it kind of became passe just you know, a few years ago. And suddenly they're all back on the spike again. So I literally embarked on a journey to sign up for as many as relevant ones, right? I'm not doing cooking or that kind yeah. of it's they're all business webinars. So I signed up for 128 in a two-week period, and nobody that I know of can attend all of them. So you register for those, and the ones you miss, they send you the replay. So streaming yet another TV show on your favorite streaming service doesn't do anything for me. So even yeah. on weekends, I'm watching some of these. And in all candor, 95% of them have been a waste of time. You wow. either have an amateur host or a guest that is all about grandstanding or pitching their next book or whatever the case is. And they completely forget that what you do on a stage or what you do on a panel does not translate well to this medium, right? And I'm reminded when television first came out, your audience may not know this, they used to broadcast radio shows. So literally video broadcasting of radio shows. Right. And it's because that's what they knew. So a lot of these webinars are too long or they go sideways or they're completely misaligned with what they promised yeah. in the promotional stuff. And they completely forget the takeaways for the consumer of that information, not you as the producer of it. Mm. So they miss the market in a great way. So I just think it's going to, and a lot of the technology is still kludgy. It's not, it's still one to many. It's still, you feel like you're being talked at, yeah. not nearly as collaborative as it could be. So it's just a great learning opportunity for me. And I'm well, learning what, a lot. What was the best webinar you attended who what maybe not yeah. who did it well but like what was something that was done really well yeah i don't mind sharing wall street journal and strategic insight has done a couple that i've attended so what i look for is a host it's not about them you're there to moderate a conversation to intelligent you can't train intelligence right intelligent engaging guests three value packed right? There's enormous value and brevity. Nobody wants to sit there and listen to you pontificate for the next three days. So for the love of sweet baby Jesus, right? Can we get to the point? Can I get to the yeah, right. core essence of- All the meandering and the stories. Get on with it, right? You lose me at hello. And I took a six-week comedy class. It is a really great point. If the punchline is not worth the setup, you've missed the point. If the insight from the story you're sharing isn't an aha moment, you've missed the point. So I just think there's, value and brevity. I think there's value packed. And then again, one-to-one -one meeting is one thing. One to a few, right? When you can have dialogue. One to many. I got on one and there were 700 people on it. And so everybody's Zoom rectangles are about this big. Oh, it wasn't a webinar. It was an open call with 700 people. Right. And of course, the amateurs, they didn't mute everybody up front. So you get all kinds. I mean, it's just like amateur hour. It just yeah. makes you cringe. So learning the tool, great host, great discussion. Immerse the attendees in the 
the content, invite them in, and then share great insights. Those are the ones that are really useful. And also shorter, right? Can we yep. go shorter or go longer, but make it more immersive? We're doing one of our own. It's 90 minutes. But you know what? It's not about slides. It's about a digital whiteboard where you jump in and you collaborate with others. And you got to bring three of you because we're going to talk about trust and rapport and co-creation. I like that. We've been doing some lately with my company. Our sponsor, Advantage Performance Group, has been hosting a weekly webinar series. And we've been keeping them to 30 minutes with a 15-minute Q&A afterwards, no selling. And they've been really engaging using polls and chat and things like that to keep people engaged because we know, I mean, you know how valuable people's time are. And when they come on there to just meander around, we jump right into it. We take about 25 to 30 minutes to explain all the concepts, give them value, and then open it up to Q&A. And a lot of people stay for the Q&A and then send the recording out. Right. Again, something I learned from Boy Scouts, right? Early is on time, on time is late. Right? <laughs> so start and finish on time. Again, there's a role of a professional moderator where you're moderating conversation. I actually don't like to end on questions. You want to end on a high note or you want to end on some key nugget. So I actually sprinkle questions throughout, which means a couple of things. The presenter, less content, less about you, more about nuggets that your audience can take away from. Number two, you got to be able to defend your position, not just regurgitate it. So if you can defend your position, people can ask you and challenge you along the way and you can respond to them versus... Oh, wait, then I'm going to give you some prescripted or some answer at, you know, later. What are you learning? You know, most of my audience is in corporate talent development. They're working in large companies. You're talking to a lot of big company executives. You're attending a lot of webinars, learning about everything going out there in the economy. Let's give people some value. What are you learning? What insights can you share that you've been hearing a lot about in terms of, we'll call it the future of work, as in what's coming in the next few months and how companies are reacting? Obviously, no one can predict the future. Sure. Let me answer the question this way. I've got kids. You've got kids, we learned as young parents early on that the best thing you can do for your kids is kind of teach them how to become self-sufficient versus do it for them. Right. I've long believed talent development, I'm saying this respectfully, has been the babysitting business, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to push people to really drive their own personal and professional growth. And really, and this is a premise for my next book as well, which is create a roadmap between my, I call it your journey from now to next. Mm -hmm. As an individual, professional, hopefully knowledge worker, where are you today? And where's your next, right? Whatever the next role, next job, next thing you want, learning has to come from within, right? I just don't believe we can duct tape people to chairs and hold them hostage and shove learning and development in their face, right? So talent development, it's got to be self, I believe, self-initiated, number one. Number two, days, I think classroom. And again, I do a lot of executive education. I do a lot of training. Most of it, hopefully not mine, but a lot of training that's out there is just boring as all get out. Get people out of that classroom environment and immerse them in experiences, right? So I'm having right now a lot of walking meetings. Well, it's, I live in Atlanta, beautiful weather, beautiful days. Let's get out and walk. What can we do walking, learning and development? Again, the idea of learn, 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 at some point, figure out to apply it, I think is outdated. How do we create those learn, get challenged, uh, apply it, come back and learn something else, right? So I think the mindset, I think the structure, I think the format of talent development, the idea that they can only learn from a subject matter expert, 
they can learn as much from each other as possible. COVID-19 is a phenomenal impetus to rethink, reimagine, if not reinvent talent development. 100% agree. I am a very big fan, proponent, and peddler, if you will, of experiential learning. So my main business is in connecting clients with learning solutions and they're all experiential learning, even the classroom stuff, people moving around, getting up, learning from each other as much as if not more than learning from the facilitator. It's been interesting pivoting that during COVID-19 and, and making everything virtual. I like to think we've done a good job with doing that. I know a lot of organizations are pivoting and converting a lot of their programs to virtual. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity, Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses. We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giulioni on developing in place how to continue your growth during remote working. And a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work plus many more, just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. You talk about experiential and the walking meetings of learning, that sort of thing. What of, if anything, have you seen work really well for virtual learning since we cannot bring people together right now. I've got teenagers. So what great opportunity to put them to work, right? Yeah. I hired one of my teenagers over a weekend that we actually researched 75 different virtual or digital collaboration platforms. And a lot of these platforms give you 30-day trials and give you a chance to test them. And so I've been on this journey to learn as much as I can and test a couple of these a week. And I still have a long way to go, but the digital whiteboard space is coming a long way, right? So you said experiential, potato, potato, I believe in immersive. So I took a group of executives, the from Electronic Show. I mean, I've done that for several years. I took a group of executives to South by Southwest, right? And again, immersed them in that experience. So we had a briefing in advance. I curated a track for them and then we had a debrief afterwards, right? So even when I do things online and when I do things with whiteboards, absolutely get and keep your finger on the pulse of what are they thinking and create a good friend of mine, Trudy says, that appreciative inquiry. The other thing, Andy, what we try to do in a lot of talent development space is we try to provide answers or we try to explain. And I would submit one of the things that COVID-19 has done is really force us to create a space for better inquiry. We need to get better at asking better questions, more powerful questions, more insightful questions. And I've always believed convey your credibility with the questions you ask, not necessarily the solutions you provide. And if you ask enough questions and you nurture a culture of experimentation, a culture of, you know what, that's interesting. I don't know. Even as the leader, I don't know what the answer is. So let's go figure it out. Let's go test it. I'm going to take you back to your high school chemistry classes, right? Let's go do an experiment and let's go find those catalysts that accelerated that infusion or so creating a culture where we're asking more questions, we're testing 
more ideas will often lead to not just more discoveries, but more impactful and more personal ownership of those discoveries. And also you build my last comment. If you build an environment where people are okay with killing 999 flowers so they can grow that one oak tree, now you're teaching them a portfolio approach to innovation and to iteration and to think about things differently versus there's just one way to do anything. Right. Yeah. So now you're talking about creating a culture of innovation, which is something I'm really excited and passionate about as well. And I was just coincidentally reading this morning, being a regular reader as well. I'm reading a book right now called The Bezos Letters about basically Steve Anderson and his wife, Karen, read through all of his 21 letters to shareholders, took out these 14 principles. And the one I was reading about this morning was the how they've created an innovative culture because everyone is compelled and encouraged to take calculated risks, take bets. They're celebrated share their learning. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you're willing to learn from it and share with everybody else involved, which is what has allowed Amazon to be so innovative, so successful. As we record this right now, the company is worth $1.2 trillion. And so many other companies have failed because they say they want to be innovative, but nobody feels comfortable trying new things because they're worried they're going to get fired if they make a mistake. So it goes back to metrics and compensation, right? So how are we measured? How are we compensated? How often have you seen people ask for A and then measure and compensate B? right? We want to be an innovative place. Great. Listen, we build a perfect execution box. And if you mess with it, you're fired. You're out. <laughs> so it's really difficult for mature companies in mature industries who build a perfect execution box to think outside of that comfort zone, right? And that's why I don't believe innovation centers or innovation hubs work mm -hmm. because you've got a 30-year veteran of the yep. same way you've always done it in charge of running the place. And a really nice guy but he wouldn't know what innovation was if it was water and he fell out of a boat. So how are you expecting to do anything different, right? And we just keep throwing, and I've seen brands, intelligent global brands waste millions of dollars on this innovation center or innovation initiative because it's the cool, sexy, jazzy thing to do. Right. And you just want to shake some sense of them. By the way, I have a lot of friends who are in these roles, but you know what I call chief compliance, chief legal, chief risk officers, oncologists, right? Their job is anything that's new, dig it out because it doesn't fit in our perfect execution box. Right. So most of the work that we do, I insist on, it has to be, I need a SEAL Team 6, not a battalion, right? Three to five people. It's got to be away from the current governance, away from the current structure. Thank God most of us have all gone to virtual because we can get a lot done under the radar to just experiment. And you know what? Bezos says the same thing. If you're willing to be really bad at something, if you're willing to fail at a whole bunch of them yeah. and you go into it knowing, right, many of them are never going to go. That's why I say a portfolio approach. Right. You have quality gates where you invest in them and only if they pass those gates will you continue investing them. But if you go into it knowing that failing is part of that learning, yeah. you're setting yourself up for much better chance to actually succeed. Absolutely. You've got to have those failures. If you don't, then you're not taking enough risk, right? And then you're not going to have the big bets. You're not going to have the big successes. You are recognized as the leading expert on applications of strategic relationships in profitable growth. And I want to know 
What does that mean? And why is it important? Yeah. So it's really nature and nurture. As I mentioned, I was born in the Middle East and, and grew up and I wrote in relationship economics that I didn't get it then, but I certainly get it now. I think I was five or six years old, the dad walking me through our on bazaars of Iran on our Friday morning errands beyond what mom needed at the house or the projects he was working on. Dad also had a relationship list and he made sure we visited with individuals that were critical to what he was trying to get done, whether it was a plumber or access to an influential politician, right? So there's a big reason why the rest of the world builds relationships first and from which they do business. As Americans, right, as Westerners, we're so focused on the business part that if and only if the business part works, mm-hmm. then we'll ask, right, how you doing? And what's going on with you? And how's your family? And right, those kinds of things, right? So I've always believed when we're faced with a challenge or an opportunity, we often think, what should we do and how should we do it? We seldom ask, what relationships do we need? What relationships do we have? How do we connect the dots with value add? So that process we call relationship economics. And it's a it's a discipline, it's a systematic process to be more intentional, to be more quantifiable and more strategic in the relationships you choose to invest in. And on any given day, that's a choice. If you apply that discipline to initiatives, ideas, innovative approaches, business models, we've proven that it accelerates your ability to get traction. So I don't know, and this is really appropriate right now because with this pandemic, executives' typical mindset is let's cut back. Listen, I like prudent conservation of those limited resources as much as the next guy, but I don't know of a company that can cut its way to growth. Never seen it. Does not happen. Right. So you can absolutely preserve some of those resources, but you better also be making some bets and some investments in other areas. And every executive I've spoken with says, this pandemic is here to stay. Yeah. And as I said, instead of thinking of it as beginning, middle, and end, how do we really start to deal with it as part of our ongoing new norm, right? As such, if your business, even with a vaccine, I genuinely believe we're going to have some angst in going back to businesses that are predicated by physical proximity, right? Sorry, I thought bowling alleys were petri dishes before all this. I'm not going to go back there, right? And most people hated the middle seat on airplanes, right? So why would we go back to any of that stuff? So if your value, you have to deliver that value in physical interaction, you better be thinking very differently right now about your value proposition. And how do we deliver that very differently? Those are examples of bets. And we've always, we've proven relationships can actually accelerate your ability to identify them, test them, monetize them and scale them. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I've always been big on relationships. They've driven almost every successful move I've made in my career. And I'm big on building those relationships with clients. And it is interesting how in the United States, at least where we are, I think a lot of people are big on relationships, but there's certainly a lot of business that gets done without it. Whereas I've learned in traveling around the world, there are many parts of the world, like you mentioned, the Middle East, much of Asia, where you're not doing business with anybody unless you have a really strong relationship with them. You know them, you trust them, you know about their family, that sort of thing. And the other thing you mentioned about kind of when is this going away and going back to work? I don't know when I'll be publishing this on the podcast and things are changing so fast all the time. But just a few days ago, I hosted a virtual roundtable for a bunch of clients, talent development professionals on Zoom. It wasn't 700. We only had about 11, I think. So we were able to have a conversation. And we talked about the return to work plans and everybody's in kind of a different place. Someone brought up that they're reimagining the office for when they get back. And others said, oh yeah, we need to think about that too. And they sent me an article from Fast Company that showed what Cushman and Wakefield, the real estate 
firm has been doing and designing this, everybody needs to be six feet apart office of the future. I just posted that on LinkedIn about an hour ago before we went live with this interview, because I think it's fascinating because like you said, maybe some parts of society will get back to quote normal. I'm putting that in air quotes. People are going back to restaurants now, at least where you and I live in Florida and Georgia, but it's not going to be the same. And companies and businesses and leaders need to pivot adapt, adjust, and be ready for what's coming. I'm going to go one step further. I spoke with a CEO who's got 2,000 folks come into their building every day before all this. He said, I'm looking outside my window and there's about 10 cars in our parking deck. And he said, we got to find a way to make it safe for people to feel safe to come back, right? So again, we brought some of the systems thinking, we brought some of this design thinking to our work together. And not only are we are truly redesigning the traffic flow to their building. They've eliminated their lobby. They're replacing it with an airlock system and UV lights. So you get sanitized as you come in. They're deploying wearable technology. So Samsung is one of my clients and they have an app that actually will alert you if you're within six feet of somebody else. They're deploying robots like yeah. those, uh, the iRobot Roombas that are constantly yeah. cleaning hallways and restrooms. And nobody also wants to touch doorknobs and handles. So right. They're replacing a lot of hands-free motion kind of technology, but absolutely they're spreading everybody's desk at least six feet apart and plexiglass between them. And same thing with dining, right? They're spreading their dining apart. Listen, I realized only about a thousand folks, good chance they're going to come back. I mean, need to come back. So one of the things this pandemic has done is challenge a lot of our assumptions about this idea of unless you physically have to be there, we've proven what yeah. this is week six or eight that we can get things done remotely. And he said a lot of these folks may not need to come back. And for those that do, we're absolutely going to create a different work environment for them so they feel safe coming back again. Fascinating. Interesting to see where all this goes. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Last thing I want to ask you about is you're working on a new book. You mentioned and you launched a podcast around that. You and I were start, starting to talk about that uh, before we started recording. Um, so tell me about the new book and what's the idea behind that and the plan. Sure. So the new book is called Curve Benders. It's my Star Wars trilogy. So Relationship Economics was the first one. Co-Create was application of those relationships and innovation. Curve Benders. So full disclosure, I'm 52. Uh, realistically, I'll work another 20 years proactively. So Andy, I've been really curious about what will the way future of work look like in the next 20 years. And one of the things that this coronavirus, which is, a, by the way, an example of a black swan event. So we kind of know they're going to happen. We may not know when they're going to happen, but we knew what a pandemic was and we just couldn't anticipate the impact that it had globally. Right. So in this idea of, and we talk a lot about right now, work-life balance, but what we've seen this coronavirus do is create a work-life blending. Right. Yeah. So I've expanded this future of work into the future of the way we'll work, 
the way we'll live, the way we play, and the way we give, right? So in those four areas, we've identified 15 forces that will dramatically impact those four. And black swan events is one of them. To remain relevant, you're going to have to continue to learn and grow. And for most people, that's a linear curve, right? And again, taking you, your audience back to algebra 101, a linear curve slope is one, you know, rise over run is just one. It looks like a 45 degree angle, just straight up. So I believe, and our research is pointing to certain relationships that come into our lives that take that linear curve and create a non-linear trajectory. So in that process, they dramatically change both our direction and ultimate destination. And Andy, what I'm finding examples and interviews, and like I said, we've got 4,000 data points, I'm up to a couple hundred executive interviews, beyond what we accomplish, they have a profound impact on who we become. And they are more than just great bosses or coaches or mentors. They see the best version of ourselves and they push us to challenge ourselves beyond even our wildest imagination. And they help us. They develop a real vested interest in our success and they nudge us to go a different direction. And I call those relationships curve vendors because again, they have a, not an incremental, not just a linear, but a non-linear, a profound impact in our lives. And one quick question that's come up in uh, the more I research this is, it's fabulous. People want to know who are they? Where are they? How do I find them? A great yeah. question. A better question is, how do you become one? Mm. Like, how do you change the lives of others such that yeah. they're not just delighted that you came into your lives, they're forever grateful and they'll remember you for the rest of their lives. I love that. I've had a few of those in my life and I try to be for others. And I love that kind of ending advice too. It's not about looking, we always ask, how do I find a mentor? You know, how do I find that person that's going to change things for me? But it's just like the Zig Ziglar quote, right? If you help enough people get what they want, you know, you'll be able to get what you want as well, right? If you focus on helping people, being that person, being that connector, being that curve bender, the person who's really going out of their way to help others accelerate their careers or lives, whatever it may be, that's going to happen for you as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you're exactly right in that uh, beyond our education, beyond our professional pedigree, beyond our experiences, I'm doubling down that these relationships and they're not transactional. It's not a network. These are far and few in between people that, as I said, just change our lens, change our perspective. And again, we're finding some really interesting nuggets. Like early on, we actually fight them, right? Andy can't be that smart, right? Or Susan can't be right about that. And, and then we have one of those V8 moments like, are you kidding me? I absolutely got to go back and reconnect with that person or re-engage them or that was a really rich conversation and I want to explore that further. And it goes back to Tasha Yurik is a good friend and uh, part of the also the, the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 community. And she's big into self-awareness and these executives or these people who have been able to dramatically benefit from curve benders in their lives first and foremost became very much self-aware of there's some things I do really well, but you know what? I don't know what I don't know. Right. And that awareness that there's opportunities for me to learn and grow is the first step. And there's certain vulnerability that comes with that, right? So we grew yeah. up in an age where leaders knew it all and they, had, they were yeah. powerful, right? There's knight in shining armors on these horses that on these pedestals and they were brilliant. And what I'm learning more and more is no, there's this vulnerability and they didn't know it all. And Hal Gregerson at MIT Executive Leadership Center is a, is a friend. I love his push on 
powerful questions and they asked great questions and which led to great conversations. Those conversations led to mutual value. And so that's what I'm mapping out is this personal and professional growth roadmap for you to become the best version of yourself. I love that. Big fan of that. Cannot wait. Of course, you've got a podcast, right? Curve Benders. You're working on a book by the same name. I am. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of that. I'll be checking it out. I'm hoping to bend some curves with the book that I'm writing because I wrote in my book as well about the importance of self-awareness in leadership and just taking ownership of your career and figuring out where you want to go. I think it's critical. I think vulnerability is a big, uh, important part of modern leadership. It's totally power. So I'm glad you brought those things up. And I'm really glad that you agreed to come on today and share all these insights, David, for anybody listening who wants to find out more about you, follow your stuff, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, it's just our website is probably the best one. So nor, N-O-U-R group.com as a blog. We just launched a forum where you get to discuss you know, a bunch of these ideas. And I talked about most of us write a book, then we'll come out and talk about it. Yeah. I decided to talk about curve benders almost a year ago and the podcast and those interviews have just enriched my experience and my learning in the process. So nor group, N-O-U-R group.com, ton of free resources. There's assessments, there's things you can download. And I would encourage your audience to also check out our forum, come ask questions, come start conversations and discussions and be a part of the journey. Awesome. I love it. I just started doing that as well, by the way, working on my book, Own Your Career, Own Your Life. And I started doing some live interviews for that, even though the book won't be published for several months. And it's adding a lot of great insights that I can still add into the book. And I'm learning and connecting with some great people, building relationships, which I think you're a big fan of. So David, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. I appreciate you coming on the show. Andy, my pleasure. It was great to be on the talent development hot seat. Enjoy that conversation and look forward to staying in touch. Yes, sir. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again and take care.